The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. God, we just thank you so much for what you've done, Lord, that you spared her. Um, not, not from what was to be certain death, you spared her from actual death, God. And uh, it's just incredible. And Lord, I know that Stephanie would echo this. God, will you use it for your namesake? to make your name known, that people might be saved from a much more eternal death because they hear the stories of your goodness and your, your faithfulness. And, and Lord, may you continue to heal and work with Stephanie, Lord, as she's still dealing with many of the after effects, be with doctors, medicines, all that, Lord, and may you just restore her so that she might preach your gospel to a lost world. But we just thank you, Lord, you've, you've heard our prayers and we're so, so grateful. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That's pretty cool, huh? Yeah. <clears throat> well, do me a favor, grab your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 3. While you're doing that, I have some announcements here. Um, man Camp early bird pricing ends today. So if you're coming to Man Camp with us, which I would strongly encourage, um, it's going to be an amazing, amazing event. Our staff guys actually fight over who gets to lead the Man Camp trip each year. So uh, it's just a great, great time. So um, that. Early bird pricing ends today, so stop by if you would. The desk on your way out, the Connect desk here, they can help you get um, situated there, or it's probably maybe the website, I'm not positive, might be in the little yellow flyer where you can sign up online, but it's going to be fantastic. Yancey Arrington from Houston, Texas, coming up to teach about making war with sin, something that maybe even today's sermon I hope would inspire you to say, maybe I should go check this thing out. So men, um, you, you really, really want to go. So I uh, encourage you to do that. Flip side of 50 group, you're going to the mission, which I am super excited about, down to the mission in Carmen Sardon to serve the orphans down there. Registration is open, $50 deposit. You can get information at the desk as well. Um, and man, I'm so excited for that. I, I love those kids. I used to live down there and I'm so thankful that you guys are going. You're going to have a great time. If you haven't been to the mission before, life-changing experience, absolute life-changing experience. So make sure that you go. Um, covenant renewal. Uh, those that are covenant members here, the renewal uh, deadline before elders call and check in on you is April 2nd. So if you want to avoid our phone calls, probably do that or just change your number like some of you do. Um, also, Wednesday, this Wednesday, it's uh, spring break week this week. There is no service this Wednesday night. No service this Wednesday night. There is next Wednesday night, as in the next, but this week, no Wednesday service. Is there Wednesday service this week? No Wednesday service. That's Awanas and everything. No Wednesday service. Um, and then also one last announcement. As you guys know, we're part of the Acts 29 Church Planning Network. And as part of that, specifically in the uh, A29 US West region, um, we actually give money as a church. We tithe into the region to support church planners to spread the gospel all over the place. And uh, we got a picture here. Rick Reeves from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon is one of the pastors and one of the families that we support. Um, this guy went and planted a church at a CrossFit in Eugene, Oregon, and it started just taking off. All the CrossFitters are like, we, we know who you are. We see your social media. We know who you are. <laughs> but all the, um, all the, uh, uh, this guy, the church just started growing. And so what they started realizing was when you're meeting in a CrossFit gym, the toys for children, the stuff that's there, it's like, oh, I don't know, deadly. You know what I mean? Like deadly. And so what they were really trying to deal with was like, man, this is really sort of taken off. We got some good things happening here. And so they're looking to now just try to build a more substantial children's ministry program. So they're in great need of all sorts of things, toys and things like that for the kids. Um, when our church started, I remember that phase. It's a really hard phase. You're, you're kind of almost having to go outside a budget to make expansions because people are coming and it's a really difficult time. So if you would find it in your heart and want to support church planners even more, um, there's going to be a guy by the door on the way out with a, a basket where we're just going to collect a love offering today for those that would like to give to Pastor Rick and his family. Specifically, all the money that we give today will go towards creating and building a children's ministry at this brand new church in uh, Eugene, Oregon. So keep that in mind, if you would, on the way out. I'll remind you a little bit later. Um, and if you would just be praying for Rick and for all the Acts 29 churches that we're a part of, that, that even as we're meeting right now, may the gospel just be flowing from that church. Amen? Amen. And then... Uh, that's all. So if you would, grab your Bibles, Colossians chapter 3, stand with me if you would. 
And I'm going to read, Sam taught us from verse 1 through verse 4. I'm going to include it in today's teaching uh, because it's still quite applicable, I believe, just for the sake of context. We're going to read through verse 17 today. I'm doing a big chunk today. You guys proud of me? Big chunk. You might not be as proud at 3 when we finish, but... Let's read the word of God together, beginning in verse 1. If you have then been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are of the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator." Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which, indeed, you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for this opportunity to come together, the redeemed people of God, and to open up this book and be able to receive the word of our creator and king. We know, God, we're not studying a history lesson or moral fables. We are here, your servants, even now, heads bowed in symbolic submission, waiting to hear from our King. So may your word rule over us this morning. May you teach us. May you speak through me in spite of me, but to the benefit of your people. May the gospel go forth. May lives be changed just simply because we have been with you and because your Holy Spirit has moved through this place and because we have received and understood your word. And so, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh, my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. It's good to be back with you guys. I've been gone for two weeks. Um, I had the opportunity to go with Acts 29 or as a representative of the Acts 29 U.S. West Network to um, just be a part of a pastor and church leadership conference in Manchester, England, actually. So my wife and I got to fly to England. We spent a few days in London kind of seeing the sights, um, you know, pre-attack, praise God, and then uh, got to take a train, hop the train up to Manchester, and we were there gathered together with pastors from all over Europe, so guys from as far away as Turkey, Belgium, France, Portugal, everywhere, um, and it was just a really cool opportunity to get to know these guys. We would have a session with these really great speakers, and then you would break into these small groups, and you had this certain small group that you were with the whole time, so you're studying with these guys and learning about their context, and, and I'll tell you, those guys there in Europe, they have so much, it, it's such a harder road to hoe than we have here. Um, and they would say to me, they were like, man, the, the fact that religion even came up in your general election last year just goes to show how much further you have to go till you end up like we are here. Um, it's a significant challenge that they have, but the Lord is doing some really, really cool things. And, and it was great to get to study church leadership in that context and spend some time with them. And so I was gone, Sam taught verses one through four two weeks ago. Last week, Jeremy gave a fantastic teaching 
Uh, men, if you weren't here, you need to go back and listen to that one. It really sets the vision for men's ministry at Heritage in the years ahead. Um, and it was awesome. Um, I actually got to watch that one from my house. Someone here was doing one of those Facebook Live things, and I was watching it. And you would say, Jeff, why were you at home? Why weren't you at church? Because I'm a heathen, like many of you are from time to time. But no, actually, what happened is we came in Friday, I used to say Friday night, Saturday morning, middle of the night is when our plane landed, coming back home. And um, some of you guys know, this year I coached uh, junior high girls basketball for Crater, for the junior high, junior comets program. And um, so I, we land, we get back in the middle of the night, and then it was the last week of the season, and our team had a doubleheader. So it was like no rest for the weary, go right to coaching this doubleheader and everything. And so after that, um, my family, we just slept for like 75 hours after that. So that, that's why I knew better than to even think about being here last week or, or preaching a sermon. So, so we weren't here um, but I did have to do that. And let me, can I just tell you guys, like um, men uh, or women, anyone, if you've ever considered doing something like that, that not the Europe thing, do that. But um, the, the coaching, like, that was one of the coolest things I've done in a really long time. It was a significant thing. And, and it gave me access to kids that I would have never met in any other context. Um, and in a way that was so different, it was so good to do something that's not just in the church all the time. For pastors, man, we are more in the Christian bubble than any of you because we're always meeting with you or elders. And, and it was good to get out of that. Like you guys go to work and work with unsaved people. I work with like Sam and Jeremy and Aaron. And sometimes I just got to get away from those guys. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so, um, so doing that was awesome. And, and the opportunities it created, like w- one morning we had a game and warm-ups are going. We're getting ready to start the warm-ups for the game, and one of our players isn't there. She comes in like at the last possible section or second, and she's just bawling. And I'm like, what's, what's going on? And I'm asking her what's going on. Well, it turns out her parents are on the edge of divorce. They've been at each other's throats all morning long, and this poor kid's just wrecked. So getting opportunities like that, they don't tend to always just come wandering up to you, you know? So I just want to encourage you guys, man, we need more Christians in those kind of roles out there whether it be Little League, Boy Scouts, whatever the thing is, there are so many kids out there that are so jacked up and need good role models in those places. And I'm telling you, it was one of the best things that I ever did. I strongly encourage you. Like I, I, I've told my wife for, for years, I would have given you a million reasons why I'm way too busy at the church to do this. And I'm so glad by God's grace I did it anyway, because it was, it was worth everything. It was awesome. Um, I also learned some things. I learned that junior high girls are disgusting. <laughs> I learned that. Um, and mean, junior high girls, mean. So there would be inevitable times during the games where out on the court, in the flow of the game, was some of the nastiest ball play you have ever seen. Pinching, slapping, pushing, kicking, hair pulling, F-bombs flying around, like just horrible stuff going down. And it was terrible. And so there were so many times during the game where I'd have to call timeout, pull all the girls in, bring them in there. And I'd say, okay, guys, guys, come here, come here, come here. Listen, listen. We're ladies. I mean, (laughs) you're ladies. And, and, but, but, but they're pinching us and they're hitting. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I don't care what they're doing. Maybe they're not ladies. You're ladies. You're fierce. You play hard. You're competitive. You do all that stuff. But all those things out there that they do, that, didn't, that don't affect you at all. You don't match their play. You play to who you are. So you're going to behave the way you are. You're going to be who you are. And so I'm reminding them, this is who you are. You're ladies. And if we lose because of that, so be it. But you're ladies constantly reminding them of that. This is who you are, and let your play come out of that. Well, Paul's sort of doing that here. Here in Colossians, for, three cha- for the first two chapters, Paul's talking to everybody. And he's in here, he's, he's just speaking the name of Christ and lifting up Jesus to all the people who would hear this letter. And he's talking about how Jesus is central and supreme and sufficient. He is amazing. He is our all in all. He is our king. He is our savior. He is our friend. He is our redeemer. He is everything. He is lifting up Jesus as better than anything else they could ever come across, want, or possibly desire. And then in chapter three, he comes in and he starts chapter three out by saying, 
If you then have been raised with Christ, and at this point he's narrowing his focus, his audience that he's speaking to has just narrowed. This is who Jesus is. Now, if you've been raised with this Jesus, if this Jesus has saved you, if you're a Christian, if your faith is in him, you have died to self, you've put your faith in him, he has redeemed you, he is your king, your God, and your father. If this is you, now I'm talking to you. If this isn't you, you can pull out your iPads, pull out your iPods, whatever the case may be, we're we're done. The conversation now focuses. So it it would be the equivalent of this, and and I'm going to say this to you guys. If you're here, and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have put your faith in him and you are a Christian, then I'm talking to you the rest of this time. If you're not, if you're an unbeliever, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, if, if you're a skeptic or, or if you just got drug here, but you know there's a free breakfast coming up afterwards or whatever the case may be, maybe you thought you were coming to play basketball, now you're stuck, whatever it is. If that's you, I'm so glad you're here. Here's what, here's what I want you to know. There is a God in heaven that has given us his very word. This God is the creator and maker of all things, including you. And the Bible, God's word, tells us that our own sin and selfishness, we have rebelled against this God and king and kind of chosen our own way. And our, the Bible calls it sin, our rebellion, our living for self, all of these things. We, we have now set out on a different path other than God. God is the God and author of life. And because of this rebellion, we're destined towards death, literally hell. This is, this is where our sin is heading, but he's good. And he loves. And so knowing that this was our destiny, he sent his own son to come and live here in human form, to become man, to live the perfect sinless life that we could never possibly live. But he was murdered. He was put on a cross and killed. And on that cross, God laid upon him all the guilt, all the blame, all the sin that we have committed that has isolated us from God. And Jesus took the punishment that our sin deserved. And he died the death that we deserve. He was buried. He raised again on the third day. He is now ascended into heaven. And the Bible tells us that he is coming soon again to judge. But he says this. If you will repent from just living from yourself, from your own, whether it's self-righteousness, sin, whatever the case may be. You repent from those things and put your faith in him. Believe in who he is and what he has done and say, this is my God. I choose you and follow Jesus. If you, will, if you would do that and put your faith in him, it says you have been forgiven of your sins. That penalty of death has been removed from you. Christ's blood covers you. And you now, the Bible says, have been picked up to walk in high places. A new destiny, a new hope, a new family destined for heaven and part of the family of God. Adopted, you're God's child. If you've done that, that's what you need to know. So here, if you're an unbeliever, here's what I want you to do today for the rest of our time. I want you to chew on that today and not listen to another word that I say this morning. And I mean that sincerely. And if you even choose not to chew on that, I would rather you get on your iPad. Because Paul right now is going to start talking to Christians. He's going, hey team, my team, not everybody out there. I need to talk to my team. I need to talk to Christians. I'm only talking to you today. So unbeliever, nothing I say for the rest of this time has any bearing on you whatsoever. There are no mandates I'm going to talk about here in scripture or in the Bible that in any way God is putting on you at all. It's not for you. He's talking to the church. You go, why would you say that, Jeff? They're here. They're hearing the word of God. Don't you want them to listen? No. Oh, you could listen in for our own accountability. But here's the thing. This is the section now on Christian living. And to live as a Christian has a prerequisite. You need to actually be a Christian first. This is the desire of scripture. And you go, why would you say that? Because to teach those things in the opposite sets someone up for a very great difficulty. It puts you in a position of living in your own self-effort instead of depending on the grace, mercy, and love of Jesus. And God never intended to put all these rules on those that aren't followers of Jesus. God wants unbelievers to understand, know, and experience the grace and mercy of God. 
He wants us to actually become Christians before we start trying to learn how to live as Christians. Does that make sense? And why would he do that? Well, because the whole idea is we have been saved freely by the grace of God. And then to turn around and teach someone how to live for Jesus without actually giving them Jesus first? Well, you you, you teach someone that they're earning this now. That their favor before God is dependent on how they do. That now I will be accepted by God because I'm doing all of these Christian things. And so lists, much like what we're looking at today, become checklists. Do that, do that, do that, do that, do that. So what he's saying here is this. Christians, if you've been raised with Christ, how many of you? Raise your hand. Have you been raised with Christ? So he's talking to you today. If, now that you have been raised with Christ... Let's talk about Christian behavior that flows naturally out of a Christian identity because this is who you are. Does that make sense? Tracking with me on that? Okay, so this is what Paul's talking about. So in this text, Paul is talking about what it looks like to be a Christian, and he uses it by framing a picture of two completely different identities, two different types of life. One is the old way, and then there's the new way. This is the way of living before. This is the way of living now. And so you can just work through the list. It makes pretty sense. It's kind of the classic list that you would see in any sort of Christian, especially moral type teaching. Christians do this. Christians don't do this. And so it says in verse uh, 5, put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. These are the things the wrath of God or judgment and righteousness of God is coming to deal with here. And then it goes on, you, verse 7, key, think about this a second. In these you once, past tense, walked. Not anymore, but once. Anyone pause right there and go past tense like 30 seconds ago? <laughs> like 10 minutes, Yesterday? Let's keep going. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another. Seeing that you have put, the old, put off the old self with its practices. You have this new self. And then look what he says. Which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. The Bible teaches us that we were created in the image of God, but our sin and rebellion against God sullied that image. We're still in God's image, but it's been tarnished now. And once you get saved, the Holy Spirit is placed in you. You're now a Christian. You have the Spirit of God in you. And now you're in this process, the big fancy word for it is sanctification, whereby you are being changed into the image of Jesus. That image of God that we were created in is being repaired and put back together, you might say. And so the Spirit's working in our life, and it's making us more and more like Jesus. And so this is what he says. It's being renewed in knowledge after the image of his creator. So we're learning about who God is. So when the Bible says, be more patient, it's not just that patience is some random virtue that God wants us to have. Patience is who God is. And so he's saying, be patient, not because of patience in general, but because this is a characteristic of God and we're becoming like our dad. Does that make sense? And we are manifesting to the world around us these attributes of who God is. So when we treat others with patience, we are manifesting, we're bringing to life something tangible and real about God himself. So this is what's actually happening. He says in verse 11, and there's, here's this part about this is who we are. He says in verse 11, there's no more Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all. He says, look, this is who we are now. That old you is you. Now he's in a, it's at a crossroads town. It's a, a, a trading community. It's a very diverse population with all sorts of backgrounds. And he's saying, listen, listen, listen. If you've been raised with Christ, have you been raised with Christ? If you've been raised with Christ, that's not your primary identity anymore. Because, you know, barbarians will do certain things. And Scythians, I don't know, French people will do certain things. You know, different backgrounds, the Jews do certain things, the pagans do certain, those are all those old backgrounds, but now you, because you've been raised with Christ, you are now, it's all Christ. That's your identity. Your identity is in Christ. And so it's the things of Christ that now matter. It's not about being like them, the barbarians, or being like them, the Jews, or being like them, the Greeks, it's about being like him, because now you're in him. This is your identity, this is who you are. 
What does that look like? Well, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And he goes through, and these are the characteristics of God. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against one another, attacking one another, right? No, forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you. You see even the pattern there. God forgave you. You're going to become like God, so you're going to forgive them. This is characteristics of your dad. This is God. We're becoming like him. That's the whole purpose. That's the whole goal here. Now, here's the tension in this, right? Past tense. This is where the way you used to walk. You don't walk like that anymore. And then we read that list. Well, okay. Um, yeah, adultery, murder, st- idolatry, stuff like that. Anger, <clears throat> wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. Hmm. Anybody come through here and read a list like that and they start going, feel a little uncomfortable? You ever read a list like that in the Bible and you start questioning everything about you? You ever have that happen? Some of you are like, no, not me. Oh, come on. Some of you messed it up on the way here today. Anger, slander, all that. You fought with your wife the whole way. You flipped off two cars and our parking personnel outside. You came inside. You took three donuts. That's gluttony. (laughs) All right? And by the way, when you came in the door and you're all, because you've been fighting with your spouse the whole way, someone said, hey, how you doing? And you went, great, lies. Now you're lying. (laughs) And then maybe worst of all, you walk through the door and you pretend like it's all polished and everything's together in spite of the messes that we're actually walking in. And we act all self-righteous and finished. And then Jeff reads this list and you're like, here's the truth. No one walked through, or no one can come through this list that's in this room right now. No one in this room goes through this list unscathed, right, church? No one's made it through that list unscathed. No one has. So what do we do with that? Well, here's one thing we know for sure. This is about Christian maturity. It's about growing in Christ, becoming more like Christ. And so let's just say one thing right out the gate before we even go forward. The mark of Christian maturity is not perfection. It's not perfection. A mark of Christian maturity is repentance. Because the more you get like Jesus, the more closer to Jesus you come, you're going to start seeing exactly how far you still are away from Jesus and his character. How incredibly holy he actually is and how incredibly sinful we really are. And so a person who is maturing in their faith is becoming more humble and more repentant and more dependent on God for grace instead of walking through here going, I nailed it. And so here's the scary thing. If I read through that list and you weren't convicted by anything, that's infinitely worse than those who are wrestling with some of these things and know it. That's infinitely worse. Because you could be at a place where your conscience has become so seared already that the conviction of that sin isn't even apparent in your life anymore. Or so convinced that you've got this Christian life so dialed that you're not even aware of your own sin issues anymore. And the Bible actually says this lovingly but forcefully says... You're a fool. And and it means that literally like you've been fooled. You've fooled yourself. And you think you've got all these things nailed, but one day you will stand in the presence of Jesus Christ, the light of the world, and that light will expose everything that's real. And before him, you will stand naked and you will realize you have been deceiving yourself. So perfection, fake it all you want, it's not real until the day that we stand before Jesus. Growing maturity, yes, I hope we're growing. I hope we're headed in that direction. But honestly, the closer you get to Jesus, the more humble you should become and the more aware of your own faults, actually, not the more perfect and finished. This is what the gospel teaches us. So no one comes through that list unscathed. So you can all, one, two, three, deep breath, one, two, three. But I'm not letting you off the hook. Because look what he says. He says, Put this stuff to death. Put it to death. The literal word, murder this. Some people go, wait a minute, wait a minute. In the Bible, we've been saved. And by the way, this is why it's so important that you preach Jesus before you preach behavior. This is really important, okay? Because we are saved by whose work? Ours or Jesus's? 
Jesus's. Ephesians tell us it is the free gift of God. We are saved by grace through faith, lest any man should boast. So our salvation is 100% dependent on the work of Jesus Christ, has nothing to do with anything that we do so that no one can boast about their salvation, right? But now that you're saved, if you've been raised with Jesus, church team, listen, now God says, all right, it's time to go to work. There's work to do. Work? It's a four-letter word in church, right? If a church preaches the gospel, it's a four-letter word, right? Well, effort's not. Let's use that one. The Christian life takes effort. It takes striving. It takes work. And this text is a call for us to get to work. You go, Jeff, I'm confused. Well, let, let, me, let me share some things with you. Let's look at some text here. Here's a Bible verse for you. Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's written to the church. It says strive. It means work, fight, kick, scream, drive, run, chase, pursue. Get it. Go after it. Strive for the holiness that without which no man will see God. It's work. Now, some would say, okay, we are saved by grace through faith. It does not have anything to do with our works. And then they think that sanctification and this change of becoming more and more like God happens much in the same way, that our work doesn't have it a part, any part of it. And they want to just stand back and go, I'm just, all right, God, make me, change me, turn me into. Well, is that true? D.A. Carson is maybe the most preeminent New Testament theologian on the world today. I, here's a quote from you or from him for you. Look what he says. People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. And we slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. Ouch. If you understand that quote, ouch. This is what he's saying. For the Christian, the pursuit of godliness or the development of holy Christian character in our life does not just happen. We will not drift towards being like God. Going, that kind of holiness, that's pursuit. That's effort. That's drive. That's chasing. And the Bible, the entirety of the New Testament trumpets this to the Christian. Romans 8.13 says, By the Spirit we must put to death the deeds of the flesh. Ephesians 4 instructs us to put off the old self and on the new. 1 Timothy 6.12 urges us to fight the good fight. Uses an analogy of a soldier going to war. Luke 13.24 exhorts us to strive to enter the narrow gate. 1 Corinthians 9.24 speaks of running a race and beating the body into submission. Philippians 3.12 talks of pressing on and straining forward. 2 Peter 1.5 just flat out says, make every effort. And here in Colossians 3.5, the command is to put to death that which is earthly in us. This is the call of the New Testament, again, to the Christian, to those who have been saved by grace. He then says, let's go to work. Let's get after it. Let's strive. Let's pursue. Let's chase. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous English preacher, said this. Look at this quote. The New Testament calls upon us to take action. It does not tell us that the work of sanctification is going to be done for us. We are in the good fight of faith, and we have to do the fighting. But thank God we are enabled to do it. For the moment we believe and are justified by faith and are born again of the Spirit of God, we have the ability. So the New Testament method of sanctification is to remind us of that. And having remind us of it, it says, now then, go and do it. The Christian life requires effort. Work is a four-letter word if we're talking about how someone gets saved. But to the saved person, work is part of the job description. We are to pursue, strive, chase, fight, 
work towards godliness, righteousness, holiness. It is a discipline. It takes effort. It will not come naturally. And that creates a little bit of a tension. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. Paul says this, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Stole that. Popeye stole that right there. You guys see that? By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. That is a really tricky verse to just read through because it seems like he's saying two things that are completely contradictory. On one hand, he's saying, it was the free grace of God. It was not I, man. The Lord just did this stuff. He made me what I am. It was not me. It was God. And then on the other side, he goes, and I worked harder than anybody for it. Like, how does that happen? Well, I believe what Paul's addressing here is this idea that I want us to wrestle with for a minute, and it's this. If the Bible tells us that we have been saved by grace through faith so that no one can boast, so that we can't get prideful about, look what a Christian I am, then how do we deal with the Bible's commands to strive for holiness and to do that in a way that still doesn't turn us into the same monster? You know what I mean? Like churches are full of people that got saved and that have been in these churches for a while and are looking down their nose at everybody else around them who's not as spiritual as they are. They've become the very Pharisees that Jesus points his finger at. And so the very method of salvation, the free grace of God given to us is supposed to take away that opportunity for pride. But then when you enter into the other end and you say, but now we have to work for holiness, you've now set yourself on a path where pride can absolutely come into the mix. Because you can go into a church and play that Christian game and look holy and do all the right things and you can get notoriety, you can get honor, you can get position, you can get um, attention, you can get all sorts of self-acclaim through those sorts of things. And nobody have any idea what's really going on in here. I mean, even going to those pastor's conferences, you know the questions they ask me? How big's your church? How many services do you have? What's your budget? Nobody asks me, like, how's your heart? How's your marriage? People don't ask those questions. But you can go in there and say, especially in Europe where the average church size is like 40 people, I can go, 800. And it's like, ooh, let's let Jeff lead the conference. Like, that could, literally, you could do that. So how do we, how do we pursue godliness and work to be a Christian, if you will, that Christian behavior? How do we pursue that in such a way that fends off the very kind of pride that that God wants us to reject? And here's the difference. This is how we're going to spend our our, our time today. There's a difference between work, effort, I'm going to do this, and what we're going to use, we're going to take, who was the first guy I quoted? D.A. Carson's quote, we're going to use that phrase, grace-driven effort, two completely different things. And what I want to do is I want to give you guys six characteristics of grace-driven effort. I'm going to try to compare them against the pharisaical, um, legalistic type of approaches to Christian behavior. And and if you're taking notes, and I hope you will, I want you to think these things through. I want you to do some self-inventory and think about like, hey, do these things describe me? Like, is this where I'm at? Is this my approach even to my growth? Or am I somewhere off track on some of these things? Because these are really important. And this text is saying, hey, Christian, look, I'm calling you to this. This is God's will and plan for your life. And a lot of times we go, what's God's plan for my life? And what we mean is, who should I marry? Where should I live? What job should I do? What should my ministry be like? I'll tell you right now, God's primary plan for your life is this, that we would become like him. And everything else is secondary. So this is important, right? So we are called to holiness and we're told, work hard for it. Beat your body into submission. Strive. Never stop fighting. Chase it. But don't become a Pharisee. So what's the difference? Well, I'm going to give you six things that mark grace-driven effort. And here's the first one. And we've kind of hit this one a lot over the last several weeks. Grace-driven effort comes from a new heart. So the source of grace-driven effort is a new heart, a new nature, a new characteristic, a new identity that has been given us by Jesus Christ. Christians, we've said this a million times, Christians are not people that have gotten better. Amen? Christians are dead people that have been raised again. Amen? This is true. 
He says it in our text over and over. You died. This is who you used to be, but you have now been raised in Christ Jesus. He's given you a new heart and a new characteristic. And so this is the idea here. I now have this heart that's been given me through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, through the death of Jesus Christ. And and so there should be some sort of desire that makes you want to pursue holiness. There should be something in you that hates the fact that when you read through this list, you feel tension. But it wants to do it to honor the one who gave his life for us. And honestly, if there's not, like if we read through those lists and there's no desire whatsoever to to do that, if you have no desire to worship Jesus, you have no desire, no real longing in your heart to be rid of sin and to be more like him and worship and serve, none of those things are a desire to you, then your question's way bigger. Your question is, am I saved at all? And you're probably not or certainly far enough off track that you have some major issues, you need to figure that out. But the Bible tells us that when we are born again, there is a new heart that's put in us with new affections for God. Are we perfect? Of course not. There's a wrestling match. Even Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't do are the things I want to do. And, but there's this new heart and new desire that longs to be like our dad. The Pharisee doesn't have that. The Pharisee wants to do the external things. The legalist wants to do the external things in such a way that gains approval from others and makes him look good. But the heart hasn't changed, and the heart's no different. There's no actual yearning to worship God. We, one of the, another blessing that we had when we came back from England is that while we were there, our house flooded, which is awesome. And so... Um, we were upset because we read the Bible and thought God promised he would never destroy the earth with a flood, but apparently that does not include my house. And so, um, so there was a lot of damage for all this. And so um, we had to call a service master, had to come in. They kind of do like either fire or flood or whatever restoration. They came in and they're yanking carpet out and bringing the blowers in to dry everything out and all this stuff. So then when we come back home, the guy who manages this particular branch of service master actually goes to our church. And so he's over at the house and, and he's going through all the things and he's building the estimate and, and all this. And he's like, okay, at the end, here's how much insurance is going to give you to be able to spend for, to do this stuff. And then he says to me, he goes, now you don't have to use us. You don't have to use our company. You can go shop this around and go find other numbers and all that. And I know some of you more admin level people are in here like, yeah, you go shop those numbers around. I'm not that guy. I'm like, I'm, of course I'm using you. There's, there's a 0% chance I'm going anywhere else. You came in here while we were in England. You've taken all this stuff apart. You have been so good to us. You've built this whole estimate for us. You're like advising, man, you have taken such good care of us. There's no way I'm going anywhere else. It's not even a question. Well, how much more so with God? And when we realize what he's done for us, when we realize the sacrifice he made on our behalf, and then he puts that new nature in there, there's got to be a desire in there somewhere that says, I want to serve him. I want to follow the one who saved me. And if that desire is not there at all, that's a bigger question. That's a good thing to chew on. Amen? So grace-driven effort comes from a new heart. Number two, grace-driven effort uses the weapons of grace. In our growth in Christian maturity, we are given specific grace-given weapons to be able to deal with this. And, and this is what the kind of effort Paul is calling us to relies on. Now, a legalist will not use the weapons of God. Legalist is using self-effort, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to make myself look good, and all of this. But, but a grace-driven effort is going to rely on the gifts of grace that God has given us. And you say, what are those things? Well, there's three primary ones that play giant roles in this. The first one is the Holy Spirit. God has given us his Holy Spirit as an agent of maturation. It's it's the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives once we've been saved to change us into the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory for another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So it is a, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to change us. And so if we teach Christian behavior to someone who has not yet understood and believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you've told them to pursue something that, a work, that is the role of the Holy Spirit in their life, but you haven't given them the Holy Spirit to be able to do it. And so it becomes self-effort that's doing those kinds of things. 
And so we rely on the Spirit of God. And we don't have the time. I, I was going to, but we just, for the sake of time, we, we can't do this. But if you go into the book of Galatians chapter 5, there's a section on the fruits of the Spirit. And it looks exactly like the text that's going on here. This is who you used to be, but now these are the fruits of the Spirit. And it's the same exact thing. It is the Holy Spirit in us that produces those things. So when we're going to war with sin, we are not going to war on our own or by ourselves. We have the power of God in us. And can I, can I just say, like, don't go all Thomas Kincaid. I love to pick on him. I know it's terrible. But don't go all, like, Thomas Kincaid devotional on me. Like, the Holy Spirit's this nice, gentle breeze. No! You read your Bible? It's a mighty, rushing wind. It's power. It's the same power that moved along the dark in the creation of the world. It's the same power that brought mountains into existence and created beasts and monsters and all of those things. That power is in you. And that's what we're relying on. We have the power of God in us. You you know that that verse that gets misquoted, and I love to pound on it, where um, you probably saw it on five or six times on social media this morning. Where it says, um, God will not allow you to go through any more than you can handle. You guys have heard that, right? You guys know that's baloney, right? I haven't pounded on it for a while. It's not true. God will absolutely allow you to go through things you can't handle. That's the point. So that you would lean on him because he's the one that can handle all those things. So next time someone says that on social media, jump on. Don't do that. Don't, 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 just don't like it and don't retweet. Okay? Just don't retweet. Don't spread that garbage. But... The verse that they take out of context to say that is actually talking about temptation and sin. And what it is saying is, is that you will not face some temptation. God's not going to allow you to go into a temptation that you can't get out of, that you can't bear, that he's going to lead you into a temptation where you have no choice but to sin. He won't send a temptation or allow a temptation on you that you can't handle. Which the way that we teach that is also in and of itself a little bit of a misquote because sometimes we can say it in such a way as if to imply that there are actual circumstances out there or temptations that could come your way that you can't handle. And guess what? That's not true. Sin has no power over you anymore. You have the spirit of God that created the world in you. No temptation owns you. None of them. You don't have to do any of it anymore. But without the Holy Spirit in your life, we're slaves to that. And so, man, when we're making war with sin, we have power with us that we need to tap into. And we say, God, if I'm dealing with lust, Lord, will you give me the, the, by your Spirit, your word says that self-control is the fruit of the Spirit. God, help me. If I'm dealing with impatience, if I'm dealing with whatever the case may be, these are fruits of the Spirit of God. So we go to him and we say, God, please help me. And then we step forward in faith, trusting that God's going to provide the power to do what we need to do. Amen? So we lean on the Spirit of God. That is a weapon of grace. The second one is the Word of God. When Christ was tempted by Satan, he responded against the sins using the Word of God. Correct? And so we battle sin with the Bible, with the Word of God. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now let me ask though, what does that really mean? How do you actually use the Bible to fight sin and temptation and to grow in godliness? Because we can say some of these kind of things so many times that they just become like these Christianese phrases. You know what I mean? Like you guys watching basketball right now, right? I mean, go, go Ducks, I guess, right? Um, I'm in a really bad spot because if Carolina wins today, they play the Ducks in the Final Four. If they were to lose to the Ducks, I will never hear the end of it. So I'm like, Lord, if they're going to lose, can they just lose today just get it over with? Because they can't lose to Oregon. But if you guys notice, in any sporting event, at the end of the game, they ask them the questions. They, they interview the winning team. And they're like, so, hey, tell us, what made the difference out there? How'd you guys win this game? And if you really think about it, the answers they give are kind of all the same and mean nothing. And they'll say the same old stuff. Well, uh, we just want to play our game. Um, We just want to trust our coach. Coach put in a good game plan. So we want to stick to that game plan, play our game, keep our head in the game, keep our feet down, stay grounded, do what we did in practice and just work hard. And we knew that good things would come of it as if anyone would ever say the opposite. You know what I mean? Coach gave us a game plan. We decided we're just going to throw that out. We're going to just play with our head in the clouds. We're going to do anything we practiced and we're just going to see what happens and maybe it'll turn out good. Like, no one's ever said that in the history of the world. It's just things we say because we say them. And dare I say, in Christianity, we have a lot of those things. 
There's all sorts of things like that that we actually say with regards to Christianity that become these little catchphrases, but we don't even ourselves half the time really know what we're saying when we say them. So you're dealing with sin and temptation. Man, I'm wrestling with this sin. I don't know what to do. Give it to God. Okay. How? Just lay it at his feet. Okay. He's spirit. He doesn't have feet, but um, okay. What do I do? Oh, bathe it in prayer. Soak it in the spirit. Wash it with the word. There's a lot of cleaning. Wash it with the word. There's like all sorts. And you're just, what does that even mean? What does that even mean? So if someone says, hey, you have the sword of the word of God to be able to battle sin and temptation in your life. What, is, what does that do? What do you actually do with that? Here's how the word of God helps us combat sin. It's a few things. The, the first is the word of God, first of all, like we've been seeing, it reminds you of who you are. It reminds you of who you are. Hey, hey, girls, come here. You're ladies. I know they're doing that, but ladies don't do that, and you're ladies. In the same way, hey, Christian, this is what Paul's doing in this text over and over. Hey, that's who you used to be. That's the old guy. You're not that guy anymore. You're a child of God. You're not a Jew still or a barbarian still or a whatever the case still. You're a child of God. And so God's word reminds us who we are. God's word reminds us what he's done. You're a child of God and God gave his life for you. That sin you're facing, he died that you might be free of that. He's given himself freely of you and we read the word of God and we're reminded what God has done for us. We're reminded of what sin wants to do. The Bible tells us that sin is not just some trap or some little thing, that it wants to kill you. That Satan's like a roaring lion pacing back and forth looking for who he can destroy. You guys remember that documentary, Grizzly Man, a few years ago? It might be on Netflix now. If you haven't seen it, strongly recommend it. It is a riot of a time, but it was not intended to be a comedy, let me tell you. Um, It's about a guy who decided he's going to go up in Alaska and live by himself out in the woods with the grizzly bears. Yes, the grizzly bears, apex predator. What hunts grizzly bears other than humans with guns? And we're cheating, by the way, with guns. So other than that, what hunts grizzly bears? Nothing. What do grizzly bears hunt? Everything. But this guy, not me. I got him figured out. I have a relationship with them. I can handle it. It's not going to mess with us at all. I will be fine. Until sometime later when another camera crew comes in, there's like camera equipment laying around, a couple of bears with big bloated bellies using bones to pick their teeth over there. Where's that dude? I don't know. Like the bears ate him. Of course the bears ate him. Duh. Of course the bears ate him. The only miracle is he made it as long as he did. And by the end of the documentary, I'll just be honest with you guys. This is stuff God's working in me. I was totally pulling for the bears by the end of it. Like, I'm just like, let's just get this show going. This is just, of course, you're being a fool because you are playing around with something that is designed to destroy you. And the word of God reminds us, hey, this sin and temptation is trying to kill you. It's an apex predator. It is designed and trying to kill you. It's why the Bible's so strong about it. We'll get in just another minute. And then the Bible also reminds us of what he has promised. Because the Bible says, Jeff, I, I know that this thing that you're chasing seems like it's going to bring you joy, but I have promised you greater joy. I've promised you life everlasting. You don't need this. You don't need it. And I'm reminded, of, or, or even just the promise that God's with me as I walk through those things. So you cannot grow into Christian maturity and become a godly person unless you are a person of the word of God. And you can't do that just on Sunday morning with me. I am not enough for you. Amen? So we use the word of God. And finally, and I got to hurry, the people of God. This room itself is a grace-given tool to you that you might mature and grow in your faith and become more and more like Jesus. We're a, a nation of priests We are to confess our sins with one another and walk with one another and deal with one another through things and to love one another and forgive one another. And all of these things exist that you might become more and more like God. And you cannot do that on your own. You can't perform all the one another's in scripture if you got no one another to do them with. 
So the church is a gift from God that we might grow in maturity and become more and more like Jesus. If you are on the sidelines or running solo, you are not where God would have you. And we need you to get in the game. And you need to get in the game. Amen? The next three will go way, way quicker. Grace-driven effort, number three, attacks the roots, not just the branches. Grace-driven effort attacks the roots, not the branches. Um, a, a Pharisee or a legalist just wants to deal with outside behavior and make everything look good. So when something flares up that's bad, they just want to squash that thing and fix that little problem instead of dealing with the actual roots. This is why Jesus said of the Pharisees in his day, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. You're all shiny and polished on the outside, but the inside is full of dead men's bones. And grace-driven effort that says, I want to pursue holiness by the grace of God understands that the issue is in here, not out there. So, so someone who's striving for holiness through grace-driven effort, when they look at their marriage and they're dealing with difficulties, they're not the person that's going to say, our marriage isn't what it should be, and if she would just get her act together, I wouldn't have these fits. If she would just, or if he would just, or no, a grace-driven effort starts on the inside and goes, you know what, I, actually our marriage is a mess because I am a sinner and because I have issues in my own heart and I need to own some of these things and if I want my marriage to improve, I need to start here instead of pointing my finger with everyone else. It's Jesus' words. Grace-driven effort starts with our heart, not with the symptoms on the outside. Number four, grace-driven effort fights for a reason beyond conscience. That's what I mean by that. Some people will say, I don't want to do that anymore because I want to avoid punishment and that's unpleasant. Or I want to avoid guilt and I feel bad about those things. And in doing that, your whole war against sin is all about you. And it's about making you feel better or making you look better or whatever the case may be. Grace-driven effort, someone that understands the grace of God, they want to fight sin in their life because they understand the reality. That our sin has sullied the name of Jesus who gave his life for us. That our sin is a smear against him and his holy perfect name. And so we want to grow in holiness not because of us but because of him. Like look what he has done for us. Look what he did for us. Look how far he went for us. Look how holy he is and yet did this for me when I was this wretched sinner. And now my sin has smeared his name and I want to grow in holiness. So I'm not dealing with that issue anymore, not just because of me, but because of him. I want to honor him and I want to follow the one who saved me. So even in fighting your own sin, it's not about you, but it's all about him. Christ is all in all. Amen. Number five. Grace-driven effort is violent, violent. And I mean that as extreme as I can possibly mean that. When he says in Colossians to put the old man to death, the literal word there, murder him. Murder the old man, kill it, destroy it, stomp it in the ground. If you chopped it with five slices, get five more, murder it. Kill that sin. Don't mess around with it. Don't play with it. Don't try to control it. Kill it. Because it's the sin that killed our Savior. And because we know what sin's trying to do. And we don't mess around with it. We're not trying to control it. A legalist will control it. Keep it at bay. But sometimes you have those things. Like, I don't really want to kill it. Because you know what? When things don't go well and when I don't get the approval that I'm actually looking for out of all these things, I need somewhere to run. And I'll run to that. So I'm not going to kill it. I'm just going to keep it at bay. No, no, no. Grace-driven effort deals violently with sin. Because in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, we see the violence that sin causes. And we do not mess around. We kill it. It wants to destroy you. So don't mess around with it. When the grizzly bear is charging you, don't try to talk it out of charging. Shoot it. Amen? So violently we deal with that. And then the last one is this. Grace-driven effort. In our desire to grow and be more like Jesus, grace-driven effort runs to Jesus no matter what. And here's why I say that. A legalist believes that if I mess up, i got to clean myself up a bit before I can come back to God. As if it was possible. And all of you know what this feels like. Have you, have you ever been, maybe even this morning, 
been in the worship service and the music's going and you want to sing and you want to worship, but there's that thing you've been wrestling with or there's something that happened last night or on the drive that morning and you just feel like, I just, I can't today. Or, or communion's there and you just feel like, man, I can't, I can't go to the table because I did this and this and I'm, I'm going to take these bloody hands and reach and grab the body and blood of my Savior that died for me. I can't do that. Listen to me. That is a legalistic approach that says, I need to clean myself up to a certain level to be worthy of coming before Jesus, which is an absolute antithetical teaching to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Christian, I'm talking to the Christians, Christian, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When Christ went to the cross, he paid the price for all of your sin. What exactly is it you're trying to clean up to be worthy and coming before him in the first place? The gospel teaches us that that's the place we should run to because we will fail. In two weeks, you take this sermon, go home and chew, chew on it for a while. Jeff gave me six steps. And in two weeks, if we taught that again, I'm not going to feel guilty when I come in. That's not true. You're going to wrestle with things till the day that you stand before Jesus and he takes all of that away. You're going to fail. The legalist feels like he has to clean himself up first, but the person who understands grace-driven effort, when they fall, they run back to Jesus because he's the only place for our help. You guys understand that? You ever felt that? Like, I'd go to Jesus with this, but man, he knows what I did. Of course he does. That's why he came. And God is constantly calling you to him. Now, he will convict you of sin. You'll feel it. But he's convicting you of sin because you've separated yourself from him. You've walked away. You've, you've allowed these things to come between you and your relationship with God. And he's drawing you in. He's not going, now go clean up. And when you get clean up good enough, come back and see me. It's not possible. And so church, listen. You are being called by the very word of God. And by God's providence, this morning, this is where we are. This is the sermon we're teaching. And he's calling you to fight, strive, pursue violently pursue holiness and righteousness. But listen, you're going to fail. And when you fail, run back to Jesus. Waste no time. Go to the one who spilled his blood that you might be forgiven, cleansed, and set free. And allow him to clean you up. Allow him to get you back up on the feet. And finally, and we're in closing, I even left this out in the last service and I felt terrible about it. Along those same lines, just remember, Remember how you raise your kids when you're teaching them to walk? Remember the first few steps? They're just sort of wobbly, stumbling around. They took like two, three steps maybe. And what'd they do? <laughs> Fall. And what'd you do? Tweeted it. <laughs> right? You were on Instagram. And you did not put on Instagram or Facebook, watch my stupid kid fall on his face. You see that? You didn't do that. What'd you do? He took two steps. Yeah. Hashtag dad life. <laughs> That's what you did, right? You celebrated the steps. You didn't watch the fall and then just chew him out. This is the Blair side. It's not, not the Hensley side. You didn't do any of that. You celebrated the steps. You picked them back up and you said, now come walk some more. And you sat in front of them, dad, didn't you? With your arms out. And even when they fell, didn't you try to rush in and catch them? Like, weren't you just nurturing? Why were you doing all that? Why are you celebrating one, two steps? Because you know it's going to lead to five steps, a hundred steps, a million steps, jogging, running, climbing trees, jumping. You know where it's going to go. And the Bible says this, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. He knows you're going to fail, but he's celebrating your steps and he wants you to just keep fighting, keep striving. One day you'll stand before Jesus and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And you will never wrestle with this stuff ever again. But until that day, church, we fight. Amen. Will you stand and let's pray. Father, help us to fight. Help us to run. Help us to strive. Lord, when we grow weary, give us strength. May your spirit show us the sin that we need to deal with, and then may your spirit empower us to battle it. May we be people of your word, of prayer, of community with one another.
I just beg of you, God, that we would not be compliant, that we would not compromise. So much of the lack of Christian holiness in our lives is because we're just straight up lazy. So Father, may we understand the race we're running and the prize that waits us at the end and may we run with all we have. God, there's people in this room that they know the sin they need to fight. And the the enemy's already tempting them to just let it go. Don't think about it. Don't talk about it. Don't worry about it. It's just a sermon. Next week, they'll be on something else. God, may that not happen. May there be no strongholds in your church, in your Christian, in your people. And I pray, God, that we would fight the good fight until the day of Jesus. And to that end, Lord, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. So may you empower all of us as we leave this place to pursue you, God. Make us holy, Lord. Refiner's fire, sing that with me.